0: Why do baby boomers still dominate politics and culture? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Kevin Munger. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Kevin Munger. Kevin is an assistant professor of political science and social data analytics at Penn State University. He received his PhD in politics at NYU, where he was a member of the Social Media and Political Participation Lab. If his last name sounds familiar, you might be thinking of Mike Munger. That's actually Kevin's father. We've done a couple of episodes with him as well, so you should check those out. Kevin's latest book is Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. It discusses baby boomers as a major force in American politics in the 2020s and into the 2030s, a force directly in tension with the shifts in information technology we are experiencing. That book will form the basis of most of our conversation today. Kevin, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's great to have you on. So, Kevin, we base each episode around a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, Why do baby boomers still dominate culture? And luckily, of course, you have a book that answers these questions that will be fresh off the presses soon. So I hope today serves as sort of ultimately a a teaser and a tracing of of what you dive into there. And and ultimately, I do hope it encourages the listeners to go and check out the book themselves. So I want to actually start very broad to really orient people on the conversation about looking at generations and, and this kind of work in the intro to your book, you call attention to two broad, what you call epistemic approaches to understanding generations and approaching questions like the ones you're talking about in the book. There's sort of the positive positivist approach and the historical romanticist approach. Can you explain what you mean by this right off the bat and where listeners should keep their mind at when thinking on questions like this?
1: Sure, yeah. Um, thanks for asking such an apropos question. Right. Uh, I think there are many different approaches that different types of researchers and even just thinkers apply to generating knowledge about the world. Right, And so I am trying to use more than one of them. So I'm trying to be quite explicit about that fact in the book. So the positivist approach is perhaps what people are familiar with when we think of science, capital S, and the idea of writing out a hypothesis and then Testing it using some empirical data is broadly within the uh, purview of the positivist approach to producing knowledge. And so when it comes to thinking about the topic of generations, um, this approach is very useful, uh, but it has some limits, right? And so the question is about the baby boomer generation in particular. And on some dimensions, which I think we can quantify satisfyingly with the positives approach, we can show that the baby boomer generation is distinct from other generations. So for example, just looking at the number of people who were born in that generation, there are many more baby boomers than were born in the years before or after. That's why we're talking about that generation to begin with. On other dimensions, like the number of baby boomers who hold seats in Congress, for example, we can compare this generation with previous generations and and subsequent generations and demonstrate that the baby boomers are punching above their weight in terms of the number of seats they hold in Congress. And there are some thorny statistical issues with saying this in some kind of satisfying way. The big difference here from the perspective of, of the book and how it informs, American politics in the 2020s and 2030s, is that during that time period, the baby boomers are all somewhat old, right? And there's a very serious statistical problem when we're trying to differentiate between the effect of age and cohort, right? And so on some dimensions, the baby boomers are distinct in this time period because of their own experience of the world. And in some extent, simply because they are old, and everyone who is old has things in common when they reach that point of the life cycle. So this is the kind of perspective that the positivist approach brings to the understanding of generations. The historical romanticist approach is a kind of, a, I'm not sure that's a common term, but it's what I've tried to use to explain how I think most people think about generations when we talk about them. So, here we don't have any kind of explicit like, comparison between generations, but we know that the fact that they experience the world in the same way because they're born at the same time. And all of the events of history, all of the media technology, all of the cultural phenomena they share in common. And that explains how they think of themselves in the world.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that overview. And it seems that to put a finer point on that, really, like, you know, both approaches are important to understanding generations and boomers, is, is what I got from your book, right? Is that, you know, of course, there is obviously room for statistics in the positivist, positivist approach, but if it does run out of runway, we have to turn to sort of the other type of indicators and, and ways of thinking about things. Yeah, that's exactly right. And
1: so, obviously, you know, we don't have that much data about it. And yet, we are pretty sure that the way in which people experience the world and their self conception plays a big role. In how they interact with themselves and in contrast to other generations,
0: excellent, thank you for that overview and now, now more into the specific question of course that you're studying um, and Of course, we will get into more specifics about the specific but i I just wanted to generate one quick sort of an un- umbrella mood if you will what well, What do you mean when you say if we're going to explore how boomers quote, dominate politics and culture, it certainly doesn't seem to simply mean there's just lots of boomers in, into politics. And of course, you see them around at, at Starbucks and things. What, what do you really mean by dominate politics and culture?
1: So this book takes the somewhat distinct approach from, let's say, a lot of social science that even I have done in my, in my other papers, for example, which is to say that we're not looking at a single cause in trying to identify an effect. Instead, the argument here is that there are a bunch of different kind of historically contingent or even random phenomena, which have intersected to produce this boomer dominance. So again, the first is simply the number of people who were born during this time period, which is like that happened because of the end of world war two and everyone coming back. And so that's a kind of random event, which caused there to be a lot of people who were born at the same time. Uh, and then, especially in the U.S., and I should say that the perspective of this book is focused on the United States. Um, and I do compare it, the experience of American boomers, to those in other countries to some extent. But I am primarily focused on the U.S. So during the post-war period, uh, we experienced kind of unprecedented levels of broad-based economic growth. And so the baby boomers were also, in addition to just being numerous, able to get started on their careers and lives um, in a way that no generation either before or since was able to in terms of access to economic success, and in particular, buying houses, which have, um, it's an asset which has continued to structure their advantage in the world. And so these kind of advantages, numeric, demographic, uh, and economic are compounded when they interact with the political system. So we look at the rate in which the baby boomers start entering Congress, and the number of boomers who enter the House of Representatives before they turn 35 is kind of astonishing. And so during that time period, it was a period famously of uh, youth politics, right? The 60s and 70s were famously a, a period in which um, the youth dominated our, our politics and culture and uh, I'm arguing that's not a coincidence that's simply because of the boomers demographic power uh, and as that exact same cohort has moved through the age cycle uh, they have then I mean in broad strokes that so we think about the 80s and 90s as a period of like um, focus on economic success right and so this coincides with the uh, middle-aged, uh, experience of boomers who are then trying to like consolidate the economic gains. And then now, um, to some extent, the period of uh, stagnation and decadence, and this is uh, coinciding with boomers at the end of their life cycle. Uh, so they're still running the major institutions, right? So they still are disproportionately in charge of the political parties, um, academic, uh, uh, academia, other professions, and so uh, that fact is summarized in the key theoretical term I'm trying to develop here, which is boomer ballast. So that's, that's the phrase I'm trying to, to coin to describe this effect where when the boomers were young, that was that center of demographic, economic, political, cultural weight pulled the country towards um, them. And then throughout the life cycle, they have continued to hold on to the center of gravity um and and kind of hold the entirety of our our politics and culture along with them
0: can can you actually and that's i'm glad you stepped into that because that was going to be the next thought i want to connect up to can you actually explain a little bit because i found this interesting in the book uh where you came up with with the ballast metaphor and what that is and why you think it's a good visual i I found it very helpful so
1: that's great okay yeah so the one the one concern i had is the ballast somewhat antiquated word right so this ballast refers to the excess weight that's uh, ships or hot air balloons or anything that sails um, puts onto the craft in order to prevent it from uh, being so lightweight that it's easily tipped over. And so the reason I think this somewhat silly term is useful is that it describes the fact that it, we don't want either too much weight or too little. So if a ship has too much ballast to of course in sink, but if a ship has too little ballast, it can be blown every which way by the winds, right? And so you want to have a measure of stability, but this stability is also acting as a kind of um, a force that slows the whole thing down, right? Okay, so without any ballast, the ship would move very quickly, but not in any way that we can control. Uh, and vice versa, um, too much ballast is safe. So the idea here is that the fact the boomers have this demographic weight um, at the beginning was helpful for being able to reorient the country towards their goals, helpful, helpful for them and, and for like reorienting the U.S. to the post-war and um, situation. Um, and now it means that their presence is slowing down um, the adoption of new communication technology and a broader reorientation to, of our, our politics and culture to a world that incorporates the internet fully, for example. And, and again, I'm trying to say that this is neither necessarily good nor bad. I think that too many analyses of generations are intentionally polemical. My mm. goal is simply to describe this is happening. This is a very important phenomenon and that many of the otherwise uh, confusing, disconnected things that we see in, in, in uh, America today can be explained through this lens.
0: Excellent. And we'll get into... Some more specifics about exactly that in, in just a second. So, we've, of course, we have just covered and talked about the sort of gravitational force of, of this boomer generation cohort. So I want to dive a little deeper into, into one of the points here as far as, you know, especially why we should be thinking about this. So you really say that the heart of the book is that, quote, technological progress has produced an inflection point in both the positive, positivist structure of generations and the romanticist spirit of generations between objective data and subjective identity. So can we elaborate a bit on that and really get into the heart of the matter as to why you think this is an important issue?
1: I mean, so yeah, it begins with the idea that lots of people seem to identify generational conflict as important now. Certainly, I mean, if you just do a Google trend search or if you look at articles that are published, um, the perspective of comparing baby Boomers versus Millennials is very popular in terms of how people understand the world. Uh, I think that as a result, that has kind of trivialized the this analysis, and so the fact that it's easy to write kind of fluffy articles that are sniping millennials for eating avocado toast, for example, um, or making fun of baby boomers for not understanding how the internet works. Right. Uh, this is disguising a much broader and more important phenomenon. Um, and so, right, the fact that people in different generations have a very different orientation to you know, the world in general and then how um, America is doing, I think is quite important. So uh, subjectively, right, it seems like younger generations are quite frustrated by how things are going, whereas the beta boomers are kind of at the peak of uh, the their control over um, yeah. politics, culture, uh, housing, the housing market is a big element of this. And yet, the irony here is that this control is not permanent, right? This is the kind of psychologically challenging problem of the ideology of American progress. And so, to a greater extent than perhaps anywhere else, the American dream is based on progress, the idea that there is progress from generation to generation. And within that generation, if you work hard, you play by the rules, you will be able to succeed. And if that works out, even be in a better place than your parents are. And that's supposed to be how it works. And so the the broader stagnation of microeconomic trends means that this ideology is not something that younger generations really have access to. And yet the older generations, um, to an unprecedented extent, did play by the rules, did get rewarded. And so it's very difficult for them to really appreciate at an experiential level how different the experience of the American dream and progress is for younger generations. And I think this big gap is like quite difficult psychologically. And as the boomers are now um, reaching the end of the life cycle, this is a very serious problem for how we treat them. Uh, that is to say that if our ideology is all about progress, we don't really have a place for old people who are no longer able to contribute economically. So whereas other cultures really care about, let's say, venerating the elderly and having an intact family structure. And I should say that most of the analyses here are distinctly about white Americans. And so the fact that America has become quite a bit more diverse during the lifespan of the baby boomers is not incidental. And uh, immigrant families and, and people from like, non-white backgrounds do intent, do indeed tend to have more intergenerational contact and extended family. But among the white baby boomers, there really is a, a big gap between how the aging, retiring baby boomers who are no longer able to contribute economically to the success of America that they helped build and the resentment of younger generations who no longer see any reason to, like keep the baby boomers around is a source of psychological
0: tension right so the so so the interesting thing i guess is that on the one hand the, the the quote problem as you said it's at the end of the day you think it's just a fact whether it's good or bad is a different story but really on the one hand we have this gap in conflict that you were talking about and on the other hand we still have this active uh, generation that still exists and still has a, a large degree of sort of gravitational pull, as you're saying. And instead of viewing that in sort of the traditional fashion of, of progress, there's a lot more, quote, conflict being identified now.
1: So, right. Okay. So the this plays out in American politics. So when it comes to certain zero-sum issues, right? So there's a pretty salient question of social issues, right? There's a big gap between each generation in terms of what they think about Gay marriage or legalizing pot or these social questions. And this kind of reflects what we think about how generational change works, right? That older people are just definitionally more conservative if they prefer the world that they were raised in to the world that exists now. So that's a kind of standard story where, where the world is changing, younger generations are pushing for this change. And that seems to concord with our understanding of generational conflict. But I think this problem is exacerbated by the fact that there are now a number of extremely salient, zero-sum economic issues on the table that are about how different generations think we should allocate a scarce government budget for spending on on, on various topics. So you look at different generations and you say, what is the biggest problem facing your generation? The baby boomers uh, report um, Social Security and Medicare, of course. These are the specific government programs that are targeted at them. And both of them are in quite a bit of trouble because of the demography of the, the age period of today. So these are programs that are premised on the idea that there's a certain number of people working in order to pay for the older people who are getting government support. And so, as the percentage of uh, Americans who are alive who are over 65 versus who are working full time has, has changed a lot, and so we've got a lot more people over 65 and fewer percentage wise people working full time, that kind of mathematically poses a problem for the financing of these uh, programs. And so, if we don't do anything, Congress doesn't change how the the specific rates for Social Security, um, we're going to run out of money, based on the way it's currently financed, in the early 2030s. And uh, when that happens, I think there's a pretty clear case that Congress is not going to let the retirees and the uh, economic, sorry, uh, politically powerful baby boomers take a 25% hit to their relatively small uh, Social Security income. They are instead going to change the rules when the crisis appears. And what that means is raising taxes on younger generations of workers um, rather than if they had... These numbers have been obvious for for decades now. They could have raised the taxes on the boomers when the boomers were still in the workforce and then spread out the cost of financing the boomers' retirement across all the generations. But instead, by kicking it down the can down the road, they are explicitly forcing younger generations to pay higher social security taxes in order to keep the baby boomers at the same level of government spending they expect.
0: I think that's actually an excellent example of the kind of political issue based on all all the that would arise from all the kinds of things that we're talking about. And I actually want to connect that thought up to sort of, I guess, if you will, sort of the the knowledge playing field and the cultural playing field that all this does does play out on. Because, you know, you, you do note in your book that, sort of advances in communications and in tech have, quote, immensely shifted intergenerational interaction and knowledge transfer. So what are we dealing with now that's so interesting and different and novel as compared to decades ago, for example? Why are there new sets of, um, you know, things that you observe that were not there before as far as intergenerational interaction and knowledge transfer?
1: Right. So I came at this topic from as a scholar of media technology and political communication. And so I got interested in this topic because of strong evidence that younger and older people experience the internet in very different ways. And I think it's important to take a longer term perspective on communication technology. So, to a pretty serious extent, the baby boomer generation was shaped by television. Television was a huge phenomenon in the youth and adolescence of the baby boomers. And at the time, this was a you know, very novel. Um, and also, it's important to remember, there very, just weren't very many channels. There weren't that many different things on TV. And so this, sh- this served as a crucial source of shared identity for the young baby boomers. And we think of the famous uh, media events of the era, with the Beatles, Getting on the Ed Sullivan Show, and this was like an epochal cultural event, which came at sort of height of the monoculture, right? Because of the technology of broadcast television, which is it is a technology which at the time is very much one to many. The Baby Boomers had a uh, widely shared cultural uh, media experience, and so when we think about. Today, the the obvious story is one of fragmentation, where younger generations, and everyone now, can opt into any dizzying number of media choices. And as a result, it's not really the case, except for, you know, exceptions of proof of rule, for all millennials to be watching even the same television show or be aware of the same celebrities, right? And you could be into one particular niche technology or another. And this means that there's a lot more media fragmentation uh, among the young, and the rise of social media makes this even more of a problem. So, sure, maybe Netflix is here and cable TV, and so everyone's watching a different TV show. That's that's one thing, but the more novel and serious phenomenon that you're pointing to in terms of this intergenerational contact is the fact that social media allows um, teens and millennials today and Gen Z to make media of, for, and about people in their own generation. So when the Baby Boomers were watching TV as seven-year-olds and the 17-year-olds, the people watching, sorry, the people making that television were not Baby Boomers. They were from previous generations of people who were in charge of making movies and television shows. And so even the mass media of the Baby Boomers youth served as a vehicle for uniting them with previous generations and obviously before mass media right if there was lots of intergenerational contact simply throughout the lived experience of uh, you know i I live i'm in a community and i'm seeing people who are from different generations and um the, the intergenerational family structure was still more intact and that served as a vehicle for intergenerational transmission of culture and values but today right if uh, younger people are only watching TikToks made by other young people. That really quickly short circuits this process of the transmission of uh, values and culture intergenerationally. And I think this potentially means that there will be an unprecedented break between the younger millennials and especially Gen Z and all previous generations. I, I sort of feel that we are seeing this play out, where like culturally they're it's just very, very far from the world they've inherited. And I think that the, the media technology helps explain why that is the case.
0: And I think that's, that's actually an excellent place to take a break. We're going to follow up on that thought as soon as we get back. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Kevin Munger today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies, Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to Task at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Danny Leroy, Andy Crooks, and Elizabeth Aragona. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Kevin Munger today. So Kevin, towards the tail end of our episode there, I think we were ending off on a really great point. I actually want to jump back into, we were talking about uh, the media and the sort of playing fields of culture that really uh, the old generation, the boomers and the younger generations are playing on and how they interact both with each other as far as in their generation and, and between generations. Is this sort of the the, the idea that you got at it in the book when you mentioned that metaphorically speaking, um, you know, now media and interaction has gone from sort of an aristocracy to a democracy. I enjoyed that metaphor, and I think there's a lot in there. So is, is that the kind of same idea you were getting at?
1: Yeah, so I think this question of democratization is a tricky one. right? We tend to think another part of the kind of American cultural mythos is that democracy is, is good, but we certainly see that communication technology has rapidly shifted in terms of what percentage of Americans are able to create broadcast media. So how many people are able to write a sentence and then immediately or soon have lots of other people see that sentence or make a video and have other people see that video. And I think, you know, 20 years ago, that number was very small, less than 1%, maybe less than 0.1%. And now we've gone pretty much overnight to a hundred percent more or less. So that's a massive shift in the democratization of the production and broadcasting of media content. So, in general, not related to generations, but just like, you know, as a fact of how we experience the world today, I think that's a massive shift. I think that uh, like we are going to be living with the consequences of that shift for the next decades, and I think that even if we haven't identified specific ways in which this affects voter turnout or the kind of things that we usually think about, it is a really important shift um, that will continue to permeate our society and reorganize like the power relationships between producers and consumers of, of information.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, you also mentioned that, you know, culture has traditionally like, quote, fetishized youth. And I think when we match that with what you're talking about, like decades ago, when there was that sort of traditional media style, plus, if we grant, you know, the idea that, you know, culture has traditionally fetishized youth, you know, sort of in in, out with the old in with the new and a lot was geared to appealing to, uh, to, to the folks that were young. Uh, but now media and tech has put a new new focus on old people, as you were saying in the book, or older people. Is that really just another hallmark of this gravitational force that the, the boomers have as, as a generation with lots of people in it? So that's why there's still a lot of um, people focusing their attention and how they're aiming their marketing and so on and so forth to, to these folks. Of course, there is still a lot of focus on youth and culture and media. But it also seems we're dealing with a novel situation where there's tons of information and content and meme factories online or whatever else designed specifically with the, the, the older generations in mind too, as, as in, and, and trying to keep them current and quote modern in their own version of it, of course. Uh, Yeah.
1: So that's a key, that's a key point. And it's certainly not the case everywhere for all the time has been youth culture, but America, and let's say capitalism tends to focus on like this dynamism and focus on new things. And this is related to consumer culture, where we're trying to sell things to people as a big part of what our culture is. And so figuring out what these uh, you know, key demographics as marketers like to talk about are, are interested in and, and focusing at ads and, and larger media on younger generations has been the experience of I think, most countries that become more capitalist, and especially the U.S., um, in the 20th century, right? Uh, and you're, you're right, of course, that there is still a, a big emphasis on, on youth culture. The, what's novel is simply the fact that there are so many older people the absolute number over, of, of Americans over, uh, you know, 60 is much higher than it ever has been in the past. Uh, next year, 2023, will be the highest number of Americans turning 65 ever, Either before or since, that will be the peak number of people like hitting retirement age. And a key a component of this is increased longevity. So even if we had a lot of people, you know, normally going through the life cycle, the fact of our success at uh, you know better nutrition, better health, uh, better economic progress has meant that these large number of baby boomers are going to be alive, conditional on turning sixty-five than ever before. So we'll have a lot of these people who are alive for longer than ever, and that we've now airdropped in this new communication technology, which allows them to, you know, all day, interact with the world from their living room. So kind of part of the ideology of American progress I was discussing earlier has meant that we would kind of prefer older people to just go away, Right, so you know, it's not you're not you're not setting the standard for new consumer technology. You're not a key part of economic developments anymore. And so, uh, absent some other like ideological commitments, there simply isn't a place for a lot of older people. And I think that's a kind of, uh, kind of stark reality of uh, our our culture. But it means that. Um, Previously, we had been sort of content to let older people, you know, get out of the way and then, you know, you can go hang out in the retirement home and, uh, you know, no one really cares anymore. And the fact of communication technology and the internet means that we all have to care a lot about the older people. We can actually no longer successfully shut them out once they've stopped being economically productive. Um, and I, I think this is why there are all of these like, online meme factories targeting the elderly in particular. And so, when it comes to campaign financing, for example, a big, a big scandal in 2020, especially, has been how many uh, older people seem to be getting defrauded by the political campaigns with these recurring donation boxes. So, you, you have a spammy email and you send 15 spammy emails that say, I'm from Donald Trump and I need your help or I'm from Joe Biden needs you to save our country. And then there's a box that says, I'm going to be making a recurring donation. And many of these older people who are not that familiar with uh, online scams are in fact signing up huge amounts of their money to these political campaigns. Um, and and this is a kind of novel situation uh, where ideally we would be up, like looking up to our elders for guidance. Where, in fact, now the situation needing to protect them from all kinds of scams, which the internet has enabled. Hmm. Um, yeah.
0: that's a very interesting point too because as you said whereas and i'm of course talking metaphorically in general here generally here whereas before older generations can kind of go over there when they're sort of done their you know a middle period of life and they're no they're for all intents and purposes a little more separate from what's in and what's happening and main economic trends as you said now they're being directly connected in as a generation to to the rest of the world along with everybody else so they don't Get that shelter off to the side in retirement home. They might be in the retirement home, accidentally donating to people, for example.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, right, I got I got interested in in this topic because of fake news, and so it it, it was demonstrated that um, in 2016, older people were much more likely to be exposed to and share fake news on Facebook. And I think to that to that to that point, it had been a sort of under underdiscussed. Topic. And now this is like a very robust finding and it, it structures how we think politics um, plays out on social media. Um, and th- that, that's part of uh, the question. I like to reorient the question about like, what is fake news or why is fake news happening to why is fake news happening now? Hmm. Right. Why not? The internet, it seems to has been around for a long time. Why did fake news become an issue in 2016 and not before or after? Um, I and I think the answer is that if you look at who was using the internet before 2016, um, right, it tended to be more tech savvy people. So obviously, early adopters, kind of by construction, tend to be more tech savvy than late adopters. But by 2016, the internet was so um, prevalent, ubiquitous that uh, people from all slices of American life were using the internet, and so that meant for the first time there were a significant number of people who were not tech savvy. Who were using the internet um and so i think that that ecosystem of Mm -hmm. uh low digital literacy users many of whom were old baby boomers uh were responsible for why we saw uh misinformation take off in 2016 and not before Mm.
0: and and as far as connecting almost everything we're talking about a a bit to another point of sort of cultural conflict or the gap between generations I, i wanted to touch on the concept as well and connect to what we were just talking about there with, with uh, uh, the concept of generational consciousness, you know, this idea that people are now internalizing the way they're described. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Because I found that quite interesting in, in, in the book, especially as it connects with the idea of, you know, people really digging into, you know, generational identity and what conflict they might perceive they have with another generation, even if there isn't one. So this idea of sort of this generational consciousness was quite interesting to me to connect up to our conversation.
1: Right. and so this. Um, so some people think that the you know the whole question of uh, generational analysis is kind of trivial, right? Um, and oh, it's just for marketing. But in fact, this this question was taken up by the legendary German sociologist Karl Mannheim in the 1920s. Uh, it kind of kicked off the analysis of the topic with the problem of generations in his essay. And so he's trying to figure out why certain. Um, Groups of people who were born at the same time in the same place uh, develop this generational consciousness and certain other groups do not. And so it seems like simply having the same birthday as somebody is not enough to generate generational consciousness. You also have to have a high salience shared experience of the world. Right. And so in the case of the baby boomers, um, well, they were identified as a generation by everybody. Like they're the only generation officially designated by the US Census. Um, it was a major understanding of everyone in post war America that this was a distinct group of people. Um, if anything, this is a, I think, surprisingly under discussed thing that I came across in my research. But Time Magazine always has the person of the year, right? The person of the year award. And in 1967, Time Magazine gave the person of the year award, 65 or 67, regardless to the boomers, hmm. right? So they were called at the time, The Inheritors was the, the title. The, the person of the year was The Inheritors. And this was everybody under 65. I'm uh, sorry, everybody under 25 at this time period. So this is specifically the Baby Boomers generation, which won Time Magazine's Person of the Year award just for being born, right? <laughs> and so I think this does put, turn on its head right. the whole participation trophy, millennials are entitled story, Right? These people, one time magazine first of the year. Um,
0: for existing. Because
1: of their generational identity.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, 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 go yeah. ahead. I was just saying for, for simply existing. So I think got the exactly, Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, just for existing. Yeah. And so that obviously means that they had a shared experience of the world a kind of shared sense of destiny. Um, within their life cycle in the US, the Vietnam War served as another very salient event. Um, it, it created some uh, internal divisions between the baby boomers, want some internal divisions that have kind of structured American politics ever since. But even that uh, uh, contributed to their sense that they were the crucial generation, that like, what, however they decided to do things would be how the country did them, right? And so the baby boomers are much higher in generational consciousness than either the silence generation or the uh, Gen X. the two generations on either side of them. And so, this is uh, some novel survey evidence that uh, me and my colleagues at Penn State uh, developed as part of the book, right? So, we're asking people how much they identify with their generation, and and in contemporary politics, this this question of group identity has become quite salient uh, as, it, uh, as a way to explain how people vote, right? And so, there's this whole suite of methodological tools for understanding generational identification that we bring to bear. Um, And we show that actually Gen Z is um, the second highest generation currently alive on these dimensions, right? That suggests uh, this is related to my story about how um, media technology is changing the experience of younger generations, right? And so if Gen Z is the first generation to be raised on media about and for and by themselves, this is, I argue, although I can't prove it yet, uh, why this might be uh, another kind of event of shared location which could contribute to this generational consciousness in younger generations.
0: As far as connecting everything we've been talking about today and we we have explored a lot to the recent sort of large global crisis, which which was the pandemic. And of course, I I, want to ask you, you know, what your view is on how the pandemic either affected, amplified or changed or, you know, affects anything that we've been talking about in the way you think about these issues. There's a lot of like, you know, uh, popular media that the mood around it to me is sort of like, well, well, who would have thought we would have had this much conflict between, you know, these people think you should be vaccinated, not, and it's very age-based and and this kind of stuff. But it, it would seem to me that you might have a different point of view, someone that's studying longer term trends and all the kinds of stuff we're talking about. So all that to say, it's more of an open-ended question than anything. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how you think, uh, what you think the pandemic demonstrates for what it was, and also the future as far as everything we've been talking about. Is you know, as, as far as gaps between the generations and so on.
1: Yeah. So the pandemic was a, an, an exogenous way in which, like, age became very salient, right? And so uh, the fact that you know different diseases have different profiles of effect, and this one just happened to have starkly different uh, lethality levels based on age and so that obviously made age a newly salient topic um, but in a lot of cases this this came with tough political questions about right should we care more about protecting uh, younger people or older people and uh, overwhelmingly we've decided to uh, protect older people and I mean the fact that this was more lethal for older people Made that a kind of obvious choice in this case, um, but simply doing that did call attention to this the reality of zero sum conflicts, right? And so, whereas I think many younger people would have preferred fewer restrictions, right? Younger people, some of them felt, well, this is actually very not like unlikely to hurt me personally, and I'm being asked to sacrifice two years of my life um, from from doing, you know, radically changing my work habits, my my. Socialization habits, largely to protect older people. Um, Personally, I think that this was like a you know an ethical thing to do. But I think that it's certainly an open question, certainly an open topic for debate, and one that raised the salience of these kind of intergenerational decisions um, in a way that I think will play out when it comes time to talk about, for example, in the U.S. right now, student loan debt is a big topic related to. Um, serious zero-sum mm-hmm. conversations,
0: mm-hmm. And, and that's another one too. That you know, of you know, of course, there are people talking about the economics behind it and so on and so forth. But at, at the very surface level, a lot of that where people fall on this online or at least on social media, a lot of it either leads with or ends with people throwing out some note on their generational identity behind it. Either it's the stereotypical boomer you know, arresting their opinion on the fact that, you know, pay back your loan, you, you damn kids, or it's the younger folks thinking that the boomers are ruining everything, The that sort of generational consciousness tinges that whole conversation. It's certainly not all about straight up economics when it comes to student debt, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and this kind of reflects the psychological element I was talking about earlier, which is, you know, if, if the big boomers live their life, and they went to college, many of them took out loans and paid them back. And so it's really very difficult to, to tell someone you know, your experience, the world, you know, you, I know that you had this experience, but it's not relevant. Anymore. Like, the world has changed mm-hmm. and your experience is irrelevant, is a very difficult thing to say. So if we're debating abstract policy questions where nobody has any kind of lived experience, we can say, well, I don't really, I don't really know. I could learn this or that fact to change my opinion. But the question is sort of like, how can we change someone's mind if their mind is quite set because of their own decades-long experience of the world? And so I think this disconnect between the reality that the boomers lived through and the reality that that millennials are, and Gen Z are living through now is really uh, challenging to bridge this gap. Um, and so this question of the fact that just like, yeah, yeah. Uh, The number of hours you have to work at minimum wage to pay off a a normal four-year degree has gone up like hundreds of percentage points in this this 40-year period. Mm -hmm. Um, You can say that, but it doesn't really resonate. Uh, It's very hard to make an abstract point which will say, actually, the world is so different from the world you grew up in that your experience is
0: irrelevant towards the end of the book too you make this sort of point because and I want to connect that back to the idea of like the sort of generational conflict gap you know a bit of that quote culture war if you will that to say you make a point to sort of write a sentence to say like look ultimately uh, you say the boomer culture will not be defeated but it will slide in, into irrelevance and I think that's just a fact of li- of life ultimately but I sort of wanted you to elaborate on that a little bit more as far as where we're we're going from here and the kinds of things that you think will happen in the future. You know, you also call attention in that same section, if I recall, to we have a year of massive retirement statistically coming up, uh, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. So as far as where we go from here into the future, where this gravitational pull of this, this boomer generation, what, what do you see for it?
1: Right. Um, so the key intersection between media technology, technology and retirement is that when people retire, they start to consume a lot more media, right? And so, insofar as kind of demand creates its own supply, this is going to change what kind of media is being produced. Mm-hmm. So, one of my favorite analyses in the book is looking at the age of movie stars over time, right? So, we look at we think about movie stars being young and glamorous, right? And it turns out that right when the baby boomers started to retire, the median age of movie stars—that is, people who are in the top five billed actors and actresses in movies released per year starts to go up dramatically, right? And so the cultural objects that are being produced are increasingly targeted at the baby boomers who are numerous and have a lot of hours to spend mm-hmm. consuming media. So it's younger generations are creating their own media, right? They're they're living in a media environment which is kind of starkly age segregated. And older generations are just going to continue to watch the same kind of media that they've been consuming, you know, print, um, uh, cable news, and, and other kinds of media products uh, as they age. It, they, and this, the, but the percentage of Americans that are in this group is going to, going to continue to decline, right? So they're going to be a little age bubble at the top in which they're trying to sort of keep things as it were whereas the younger generations are already moving on to their own novel uh, media environments.
0: And I want to ask you one more question before we head to to our formal wrap-up. So it's basically the the second last question, but ultimately the last question of the main conversation. I I like at the end of the book, you sort of, you ultimately end off on a a word to any younger folks ultimately reading the book. And you say, to deploy new solutions and policies suited for the digital age, we will need to move beyond the inherited structures of the 20th century. And you also say that younger generations may ultimately feel that, you know, the glue that the boomers had, had used to hold things together sucks ultimately and is ultimately undesirable. But you also say, even so, uh, the younger generations need to learn how to build and not just criticize and to use technologies to build new institutions, not just be used by them. And I kind of just want to end off here for you to elaborate and explore why you thought that was such an interesting and important point to really en- end with because ultimately of course we're heading into the future whether we like it or not so that's that's really what things are about for the younger generations
1: yeah so this i think <laughs> ties it back to this idea of balance right and so the baby boomers running these institutions still like you know both political parties and um, higher education law firms etc and also just like local civic institutions being run by this exact same generation of people like a lot of that is built on their specific social and and uh, yeah, connections um, and so they are to a large extent holding the country together um, and younger generations well, I mean I think it's really connected to like we're not really joining these institutions uh, at the same rate and I think, again this is because the baby boomers are holding on to their positions longer than uh, you know, they otherwise would for all the reasons we talked about. But it means that there's going to be a big kind of um gap, an opening when the boomers uh, retire from, from public life. And the question is what's going to happen? And and my concern is that social media is a very powerful technology, but it's not very good for building things. So we're seeing that social media can get people into the streets quickly, it can change how we talk about things, it can make things go viral. But in terms of you know, the many year-long process of developing, you know, intense cultural, social connections, uh, communities—that is not something that social media is good at. And so, if um, social media continues to be the central way that younger generations experience the world, uh, that's going to be a problem for uh, kind of holding the country together. Once the baby boomers who were born before social media and built institutions without social media
0: are gone right and just a quick thought to add to that to one thing i i do like that you did mention as well is that you talked about also a new paradigm to consider is, is just the fact, again, whether one, once someone views it as good or bad, is that a lot of these, um, you know, the cloud, the networks, the data centers, et cetera, et cetera, like, you know, these are ultimately being housed with very powerful institutions as well. And that the federal government views itself as one of the only balances to these institutions as well. So it's not just this vast Internet out there. There's also this other playing field of, of power that's going to be interesting to watch play out over the next little while, too. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um yeah, there's a lot yeah. There's there's a lot of these different battlefields that we should be looking at. Absolutely.
0: And uh so I'm going to move us to the formal wrap up Kevin. I think we've we've talked about a lot. I think it was a great conversation, a great t- tour of ultimately the ideas in the book and of course we encourage the listeners to keep an eye out for Kevin's book and, and and go check it out. But as far as today's conversation I want to ask you the official last question because I always want to give the guests the ultimate last word, which is what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on why boomers still dominate politics and culture and what that means now and for the future? In other words, if you wanted someone to take just one, two, or a few takeaways from everything we've talked about, if anything, what would you want them to take away? Well, so yeah, that's
1: why I coined this term boomer balance," And so I think this lens helps explain the history of the 20th century, the post-war America, and today. And part of it is just, this is not really... By design, it's no one's fault, but it's a reality where we have the highest concentration of demographic power among old people right now compared to the past, right in the midst of this gigantic shift in communication technology. And that is the cause of a lot of our dislocation, a lot of why the world doesn't make sense is that these contradictory trends are pulling in different directions. And this it didn't happen for necessarily any one reason, but it is a big cause of the contemporary um, you know, confusion and chaos that we're all experiencing.
0: We'll leave it there. Kevin Munger, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task.
1: Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation.
0: The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine El-Chediak, and Eric Seging. Our executive producer is Matt Buffton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.